This podcast is brought to you by Mad Company, a nonprofit theater company based out of New York City. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of One Hail of a Conversation, the current title of this podcast. I am James Hale. I am the executive director of Mad Company and your host at the moment for this podcast. Uh, with me today in the studio is the inimitable Max Brand. Oh, thank you. One Wonderf- hail of a podcast. Wonderful man. I love that name and I love that person. Thank you. I'm going to make you redo it. I might record another one. It's terrifying. And then left, <laughs> left it behind. We're tired. Right. And we're back after that exciting interruption. What next season will hold? My <laughs> name is James Hale. We're very excited to have you here today. I've got lots of questions, so we're just going to dive right in. Sounds great. Uh, first up, I'm wondering... I've done all my homework, I promise. But <laughs> sure. you are an actor, a writer, a comic, an assistant director. Are there any other titles that we need to add so that everyone is aware of your, your talents? Uh, I would say producer, I think, because I've produced producer. a decent okay. amount of things. So yeah, okay. I think I think that's probably the scope of my current bag of tricks. All of which I, I, I don't know if I had ambition for, but they were necessary to continue to perform. But sure. yes, continue. Right. You had you had to do them. Yeah. Not necessarily desire to. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. So you are from, I guess, Colorado. It's a little bit difficult to tell from your, your bio. Many places, but we'll call it Colorado. I wonder if you can just, in your own words, sort of trace your journey from Colorado to New York City to becoming the treasurer for what I keep hearing is the most exciting young theater company in the world. Yeah, I keep, frankly, I hear the same thing. Uh, every deli I go into, people are talking, talking about it yeah. uh, on the street. They're, go- they're going crazy for it. I think it's road rage, but it's just someone stopping to talk to me about Mad Company. It's really great. <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, so my journey, I mean, for those of you who don't know anything about me, uh, yeah, I was born in Montana, and then we moved around the world mm-hmm. uh, for my dad's job, but we always came, came came back to Colorado. And so for the journey from Colorado to New York, it was mainly about school. You know, I, I, I've wanted to be an actor since I was about four years old, oh, wow. and so I always wanted to, well, my original plan was to move out to L.A., live out of my car and make money <laughs> strumming my guitar on the streets and then audition during the day. Absolutely. Uh, the dream. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so romantic and wonderful <laughs> and very realistic uh, looking back. It's just perfectly realistic. But I went to a, uh, a thespian convention mm. in high school and I was taught a workshop by someone for what was known at that point as a school for film and television. Okay. And that school was based in New York City. So I was like, I'm looking into the school. And that, since it was based in New York, it kind of brought me out here. So, okay, I, so I didn't realize that. You actually came for school. Yeah, I came for it. It was a two-year school because originally the plan was to be famous by 22. Yep. Uh, <laughs> so I had to get Funnily out enough, that was my plan as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, it makes sense. Yeah. It's, uh, once again, realistic yep. and anchored in reality for most of us. So, yeah, that was my plan. That kind of brought me out here. And then I've just more or less stayed here for... 16 years. Wow. Okay. Yeah. 16 years. All right, that answers a follow-up because you of our group, I think, have been here the longest, other than maybe a couple people who are from Long Island, New York. But you, as a transplant, have certainly spent the most time in the city. Maybe. Which is interesting, and I, I will follow up on that. Interesting. So you, you came here specifically for this two-year program. Also, all over your bio and your resume is UCB. When did you start... When did you become an upright citizen? How did that happen? <laughs> um, yeah, I started taking classes there in 2009, I think was my first class. So I, I got out of 
school for the school for film and television. Mm -hmm. I was auditioning and then I ended up taking a workshop from a commercial agent. And they told me that if I wanted to get hired in commercials, I should take classes at UCB. Okay. And so I went to a show there. And I would say this was sort of the height of what UCB was at that point. If you don't know what UCB, it's a it's called the Upright Citizens Brigade. It's a theater started by Amy Poehler, Matt Walsh, Ian Roberts, and Matt Besser, who are all famous in their own right. But they came out of Chicago mm-hmm. and they started an improv school here and a theater first and then a school. And I just thought it was amazing. And so I just kind of got hooked and taking classes. And I will say that I, I didn't really feel part of the community. I, I wouldn't say I was a upright citizen, uh, as you put it, which I love. I don't, don't have a badge um, or anything. Right, right, right. We did get sweatshirts, which oh. I, I never really wore when I was performing there. But then once it, it kind of all fell apart in the pandemic, I felt like I wanted to wear it more. <laughs> there you go. Solidarity. Um, yeah, but I think it was like it was one of those things where it's it was a very, um, I mean, like any place. It's there was a there was an in crowd and the people mm-hmm. who weren't quite part of it yet, and I always felt very much on the outside of that. Hmm. Um, and then I was put on teams there, and I slowly felt more like I was part of it, but still a little bit on the outside. But as it continued, I met more and more people that I got close to. I think when you start anything initially, it's like, oh, nobody here likes me. I don't, right. you know, I don't really work with anybody. Right. I am the outsider. Yeah. And then slowly you meet the people that you're like, oh, you're actually way cooler than I thought, or. <laughs> You know, yeah, you're not like a total asshole. And, right, you know, right. The ignorance of first impressions. Yeah. So I think, you know, so I I was there for quite a long time mm-hmm. on a sketch team and I did improv periodically, but I was primarily there as a sketch performer and I hosted shows. And and I think what I loved about it was that it was I mean, we were performing for free, but right. it was like we could kind of by the end, especially I, of my time there, I think I I really felt like, you know, me and my friends could do what we wanted to do on stage. Sure. And that was really fun. And whether it was midnight or not, it was kind of like, oh, I have this opportunity to just perform in right. New York City. And that was really exciting. Right. And that's can be rare when you're not doing it. You don't realize how, how frequently you're not performing. So this is interesting. This is something I don't really understand that well about the comedy scene. What specifically are the differences between a sketch show and an improv show? Because in my head, I would show up to either of them and assume it was the same thing. Sure. I mean, hopefully, first of all, they're both funny. Uh, that's okay. <laughs> hopefully they'll Job both one. Yeah. Hopefully. I mean, that's their similarities for sure is they're both probably intended to make you laugh. An improv show basically is uh, they would get a suggestion from the audience and make everything up on the spot. Okay. So there are various forms of that, but that would be kind of the basic premise. And okay. then a sketch show would be more like Saturday Night Live, where they've written all the sketches, they've rehearsed the sketches, and that's like generally a half hour in UCB would be like a whole sketch show, but it would be sometimes with a theme, sometimes without a theme, but it would be a bunch of individual sketches with actors. Interesting. And So, yeah. so these are like written and rehearsed ahead of time. It's not yeah. an improvised scenario. Right. Yeah. Okay. Oh, important distinction that I, I come on this podcast to learn things. Hey, there that's you why, go. That's why I do this. So you are at UCB, you're at the School of Film and Television, you're breaking into New York, you're taking the city by storm, (laughs) you decide to eventually leave to go to London. Yes. How did that come about? Well, it was actually funny, they sort of intermixed because I I was performing a lot um, at UCB, Mm -hmm. so you know, generally probably about two times a week on average. And one of my shows, UCB also had theaters in L.A. 
and um, they still have theaters in LA. So we took one of our shows that was pretty successful in New York City, and I was a performer on it. A friend of mine wrote it. It was a great show. We took it to LA for a couple of performances, and fellow Mad Company board member Lauren Zabilski uh, lived, lived out in LA, and Lauren and I went to high school together. And so uh, I was like, hey, you wanna grab a drink? Just say, hey, like catch up. And so I met up with her and her sister, and she just had let me know that she was applying for a bunch of master's programs. And she mentioned a bunch of schools, and one of them was Lambda. And I had, I had thought about applying for going back to school, but I never received a bachelor's degree. Right. And so I was sort of limited in my options. And uh, so I couldn't apply to any schools in the US. Um, but then I looked at Lambda's website and they were like, they would take professional experience. Well, <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, I maybe that's true. I mean, I got in, so maybe that's true. But they put on their thing that they, they would allow for professional experience over ah, a bachelor's degree. Okay. So I basically sent them my resume and my TV credits, my film credits and like things like this that I'd done throughout the years, which none of which are super impressive, but they're there. They are physically, they I, yeah. I did do things that showed up on certain platforms. So I kind of sent that their way. And they were like, yeah, this works for us. So I applied just to Lambda. That was the only school I ever applied for. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, and I was like, eh, if, it, if it doesn't happen, I'm still performing and I'm right. still like, you know, growing my career. But I felt like Lambda would be, I always wanted to study Shakespeare hmm. because I was never that good at it. And I was kind of intimidated by it. And I was like, well, I think that's like real actors know how to do Shakespeare. And so I applied and I worked with one of my acting coaches for the for a monologue and I did it and I was like if that doesn't work I just go back to doing comedy uh, and my stuff right. that I'm already Try doing thing. right and then I ended up getting in so I was like all right let's do this and yeah so that's amazing yeah just kind of happens why so you you wanted to study Shakespeare because mostly some real actors do Shakespeare what was you, you said you wanted to be an actor since age four like yep. what was the impetus for that, what, what were you seeing that made you want to suddenly become an actor? I think it was the idea that I loved playing pretend in the mm. woods and I would do that by myself all the time, especially because we moved around so much as a kid. I mean, by four, I was I was still very young, obviously, but I, but I remember watching, I always watched movies, especially, and it was like, oh, as a grown-up, you can be, you can just play pretend. And I was, and it always was very exciting. So I yeah. think that's what it always was for me. It was like, oh, I can just live all my fantasies that I'm doing on my own in the woods, but I can do that for money. Forever. Yeah, for forever. And, and well, at least I thought it was for money. Uh, the last 16 <laughs> years have proved. Prove otherwise. Periodically for money, but often not. Yeah. Sure. That's very, pretty self-aware for a four-year-old. I feel like as a child, I watched whatever it was and always wanted to be the things the actors were portraying, not the actors themselves. So it's well impressive that you could... You realize that these people were just pretending up there. Well, thank you. I mean, I, I'm not sure. You know, I mean, my mom told me, right? Like, I don't remember. I don't have vivid memories from being four years old. So my mom was like, <laughs> I, I, she told me that I've been talking about it since I was four years old. Right. So it's possible she lied. She could be just a straight up liar. And <laughs> I never said anything about acting until I was 10 or something. But, but yeah, I think it was mainly that I was like, you know, I would see, you know, I'd see these people on the box doing the exciting things and right. be like who are these people and my mom would be like those are actors, those are actors. and I was like oh well that sounds the fun they can be in space they can be underwater whatever you know yeah really just all derives from you wanting to be in space and underwater maybe that's it that's <laughs> that's that could be just, that's the height of it <laughs> the entire reason I'm doing this yes so in New York 16 plus years acting 
doing comedy, living life. I'm curious how how is it how how do you think you've done finding balance between making art, making money, having a life and friends and and what are some of the things that you've learned or some of the the ideals that you strive for in order to make that balance happen? Ooh, big question, James. Yeah. Um, I we think, dig deep here. Yeah, one right, hell of a conversation. Right? Yeah. <laughs> hell yeah. Hell yeah. Well, I would say that I have loosened my grip on what should happen as a actor, artist in New York City. Mm-hmm. When I first got here, I think I had very harsh judgments for anybody with any sort of day job that would take over their life ostensibly because I was like you have to be available for every audition that's what was drilled into me for a long long time and it was like if you say no to one thing then you're going to be blacklisted and no one's going to want to work with you and all this kind of thing and so I did that in my early 20s and it was wonderful because I was in New York and I was doing new things sure it was also a little bit of hell because I I just really hated most jobs I had the good part about it was they were all like stressful in the moment, but then I went home and there was nothing to worry right. about. It was like, yeah, it was a catering event that absolutely does not matter anymore, you know? Okay. So that was nice, but but I was just like physically exhausted. I'm a person who likes to get up early and go to bed early, and sure. I was working all these jobs that I was up till 2 a.m., 3 a.m. So anyway, I think I started when I started doing things at UCB, I started kind of working with writers that Mm -hmm. had like regular day jobs and then would write sketches at night. And then some of them would kind of end up being actors and, and they never had to do like a, in, you know, like a bad restaurant job or something like that. Right. Not to say that like there's really good restaurant jobs too. I had a decent (laughs) amount of bad ones, but not to knock the restaurant industry. Yes, exactly. We love the restaurant industry. I love to frequent your establishments, but But I think I realized, I was like, oh, I don't have to do what, like, all the plays and all the movies say that actors have to do. Right. Right. The broke artists. Right. Yeah. And so I ended up, through UCB, I actually ended up being a tour guide um, as a day job. And then I sort of cobbled together. I worked with dogs for a while. So for a while, I was a tour guide and a dog walker. And then I would, because I was making friends and connections and people that were doing producing things in the comedy world, I would be hired as an actor for a lot of projects that ended up going online, but also there were like very small things for a TV show and all these kind of things that cropped up through people I knew at UCB. Sure. And so I was able to kind of definitely before the pandemic, before going to Lambda, I was able to sort of cobble together a life for myself of about three or four different day jobs with (laughs) acting jobs. Sure. And I was, I was proud of myself because I was like, well, I'm, I'm not in the red. Yeah, like, I'm you're not, making it work. Right, I'm making it work. But it wasn't wasn't growth oriented. It wasn't like, oh, in five years this is going to be still great. Right. It was very, right. and that's one of the not reasons. Sustainable. Right, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to go to Lambda was because I I wanted to get back to the art, but I also, frankly, wanted to set myself up in a position that might help me make more money as an artist and Mm -hmm. having a master's degree is very helpful. Yes. And for many reasons, but even if I wanted to do something else like regular job wise, I think I wanted to go back to school for that reason and have a master's degree on my resume. But yeah, so before, before I went to Lambda, I think it was, it was very much a cobble it all together. And, you know, my, my now wife, but I was, you know, dating her and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, she, and I kind of had similar lifestyles. We didn't have a dog, which we have now. We love our dog. <laughs> but it's like we didn't have a lot of things. And so we were each periodically up 
till like 1 a.m. various nights sure. and and just tired. So, you know, for me, it's like now I just what I tell everybody is like, do what do what makes you feel best. And then you will have opportunities for art no matter what. Right. But if you are feeling good about yourself and, you know, you need a job that you can do auditions, you know, but you, there if are you can't m- do art, then you can't do art. But. Right. But I think, you know, most day jobs, especially now in this environment where things are remote, it's like people go like people that aren't artists get off for like hours for doctor's appointments or whatever. And it's like, you know, if you get your work done, right, you can make it work. So it's like do what you like. Do it. Do Do what make it makes you not miserable. And, yep. and then you'll be able to at least my opinion is you'll be able to probably deal with the artistic lifestyle a little bit better. That's I would agree with that. I mean, that seems wise. Don't don't be miserable. Yeah. Having sort of come to that, gone through like maybe the typical artist life to where you are now, what does success look like to you or how would you define success for yourself, either as an artist or just in life? Yeah. I mean, that's sort of a question I think I grapple with every day. Sure. Right now, I think my version of success is balance in both my life and as an artist. If you have balance, you're usually pretty okay in the sense that you're going to have moments that are like incredible and really exciting and all of that. And then you're going to have moments that are like really terrible and you just hate everything. But if you can always sort of come back to an equilibrium at the end of each of those days, then I think you're in a good spot. So in in my mind, like success would be, I mean, monetarily, it would be making my money for my life as an artist. Sure. That would definitely be a version of success that I don't think I've, well, I definitely have not achieved as of now. I make a certain amount of money doing it, but it's not like this is the only thing I'm doing. But also success on that sort of same train of thought is not having to worry whether I can afford my apartment at the end of the month. So therefore, you know, I have a day job. Right. And I, that is a version of success is like, I am secure in that so that I'm not, you know, every night pulling my non-existent hair out. <laughs> but I'm a bald man in case you are not watching no, you're this. Right. Um, in case this is audio only. But, but yeah, I think it's, uh, it's a lot of that feeling, which is like, what are your priorities? Right. And how can you be an artist in those priorities? So for me, it's like the art I make is incredibly important to who I am as a person. Mm-hmm. And in order to create that art, I need to know that I have a place to sleep. Right. A modicum of stability. Right. So I think that's, I think that answers that is like, I need stability for myself to be an artist. I also cannot only have stability uh, because being an artist is pretty crazy and wild and wonderful, but you know, everything. Right. And so I I can't just have stability. I couldn't live that kind of life, but I also can't have some mix of stability and freedom for artistic creativity. Yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. That feels like a, a noble thing to strive for, for sure. Yeah, we're all, we're all striving. We're all striving. We'll see if any of us get there, yeah. We strive. You found this balance for yourself. As an artist, you have an idea of what success looks like, something to strive. I am not, I do not consider myself a comedian by any means, and so I'm curious about sort of the creation of material as a comic, specifically as someone who writes your own, your own stuff. So two-part question, A, where do you find thoughts, ideas, the impetus for whatever eventual product you create, and how do you go about turning 
that idea, whatever it is, into a joke, a sketch, a character? How does it, what how does that come about? Cool, yeah. Um, you know, it's funny because I I think comedy is not for everybody, but at least for me, is similar to acting in the sense where it's like if you have any one-off conversation with me, I'm not going to be the funniest guy you've ever talked to. In general, don't I don't sell yourself short. <laughs> thank you, but I think it's you know. I don't really put that on myself generally day to day. I think there are comedians that do and are brilliant. You'll meet them and you're just like, this is the funniest guy right. I've ever talked to. And they're a brilliant comedian as well. It's just like, ah, oh, man. For me, it's, uh, I think, I have to work for it. Um, hmm. But I find generally the original feeling for it um, incredibly fun. And the work is generally like honing down the idea to explain the thing that made me laugh in my head to an audience. Interesting, um, okay. Yeah, so it's like, I guess, you know, a lot of my ideas come from extremity of emotions or feelings. So something that really makes me mad uh, will often help me come up with a joke about it because if I just start writing all the ways it makes me mad, then, you know, I can see how ridiculous it is that I'm mad at that or um, how stupid I am for being mad at that, okay. or you know something like that, or how absolutely righteous I am in being absolutely like, this is the truth and all of that. And I think how it is, you know, I have the most experience writing characters, like hmm. something you may see on Saturday Night Live or something, sure. like a monologue with jokes all the way through it. So they have a very specific voice and a very specific point of view, you know, so sometimes that just comes out of me, you know, like the James and I did the scene for our final <laughs> scenes for Lambda, our showcase, our yeah. showcase, which was, <laughs> you know, about one of our characters accusing the other character of being a sink pisser. And that all stems from me going to the bathroom in my apartment. <laughs> Nobody freak out. But I went in my apartment and I just looked at my sink, and I'm tall, and I was like, I could just piss in my sink. The right height, right. Yeah, and I'm like, that's that would be weird. And then I made, like, a voice of, like, sink, pisser, you know? And that's how it, like, just came out okay. of it. Uh, and it was just fun for me to do that voice, and it was fun for me to write that, because I was like, who is this person who loves pissing in sinks? Or is, and, and what ended up being the case was ashamed of being, of, of pissing in sinks. Right. And, the dark secret. Right. And ended up being that, you know, he was from, uh, you know, a, a lower class upbringing where they didn't have toilets. And, you know, it was very silly, but it's like based in the reality of sort of, I guess, how right. the world works, which is like when you grow up a certain way and then you interact with other people and they say, like, that's not how right. things your, are done. Your normalized behavior is is not normal. Right. And I think like I have a lot of that, especially with moving around. There was mm. a lot of times in my life where something that I thought was normal in my family and or in my country, for that matter, when I lived internationally was like made fun of by my peers and not like in a terrible way. But, you know, like when I lived in Singapore, they called a cell phone a hand phone and uh, okay. which Fair. makes perfect sense. Yeah. But when I called it a cell phone, everybody made fun of me, you know, so it was like kind of that learning curve of like, oh, they just call it something different. In the same way that Americans would make fun of me if I called it a hand phone. You right. Know? So anyway, it was just, it's one of those things that I'm fascinated by. And within the last three or two years, I've been doing more stand-up. And I think those kind of come out of, I think, mostly poking fun of at myself. Mm -hmm. um, and the same thing, which is like things that frustrate me or whatever. But there's a lot about stand-up that's um, calling out 
your own appearance sure. and calling out um, what people see because that's who's on stage. Right. And so it's a lot about me like analyzing what I look like and what I think is weird or or what I think is actually really good, but people have told me is weird. People, right. You know, and, it, and and you know, and then the audience can sort of have fun, hopefully, with the idea of like, yeah, I do see what other people are seeing. Yeah, and this guy's crazy for thinking that, you know. But yeah, so I think that more or less answers it. Yeah, yeah. So as as you move more into stand up, do you feel like you come from this place of writing mostly characters and then evolving that into comedy? Do you feel as a stand up that you're playing a caricature of yourself on stage, or are you just up there telling jokes about yourself ostensibly? Yeah, I mean, I think I mean I think everything is I think all. Stand-up comedy is a little bit of a character. Sure. Um, I mean, like I said, there are maybe people that are completely themselves doing stand-up comedy, but it. But I'm not sure that's even true because it's it's always going to be a distilled version, right? And you are there to make people laugh. So it's like me in my regular life, I'm not existing in the world to make everybody around me laugh. So all evidence to the contrary. <laughs> but. Well, thank you. Uh, but it's it is like you know I'm just. I'm just kind of existing in the world and, and ridiculous things may happen or may not happen. But I think for stand-up, it's like I have five minutes and I'm trying to tell you in the most concise way possible the reason why I think this situation is funny or I am funny right. or like look at this thing that's dumb about me or right. whatever. And the purpose of my being here is for one specific event. Yes. Interesting. That's really interesting. And I'm fascinated. You So your comedy comes from the extremities of emotion, which is really interesting to me. And I clue in on that because that's one of the things that Lambda we talked about a lot, especially with Shakespeare, is that all of these plays in the canon deal with the absolute most in human behavior at whatever end of the spectrum. You know, it has to be literal life and death. It has to be, you know, you will spend the rest of your life and be wonderfully happy or you will not spend the rest of your life and be tremendously sad. And so it's interesting that sort of what I think of as, and I would say a lot of people think of as sort of the height of drama is in fact also the essence of of the comedy that you create. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with that. I think because to me, it's like, even if my jokes are not particularly full of emotion or anything like that. Some of them, I think, have, like, sort of a character aspect to them. But I think, like, if you're rehearsing, like, if anybody who's, like, rehearsing a Shakespeare show, I think most of the time throughout the rehearsal process, there will usually be a point, like, if you're doing, we just did Romeo and Juliet. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can laugh about the fact of, like, uh, you know, you, you can say, like, oh, Friar Lawrence, like, if you just would have delivered that thing yourself or something like that, you know, you can sort of laugh at like the fact that so many things could have been solved if one person would have just done something slightly or like, you know, Romeo, it's like, if you just would just chill, right. <laughs> if you just didn't kill yourself right then, you know, wait, wait one literal minute. Right. And it's like, so I find that like a lot of times for stand up or for sketches or whatever, it's like that juxtaposition hmm. of like, if I have a crazy experience with someone, like one of my jokes is all about, based on what my family has told me about living in New York and how my family is like, I could never live in New York, you know? And like, and they do say it that dramatically and they do say it with that much like disgust for living in the city or whatever. (laughs) And so for me, it's like, I make fun of that because I'm like, yeah, like it's not that hard. Why such a visceral reaction? Yeah, exactly. So I think like that is 
sort of the extremity of emotion, but it's sort of calling out that it's ridiculous to have that extremity of an emotion about just a place to live. Right. And, you know, right. Ten so, million people live here. Like, we're right. Not, we're not all crazy. And like, I, I think. think, yeah, we like like living here. <laughs> like, there's it's expensive for a reason. Like, right. Know? So I don't know. It's so I think like that's that's part of what I talk about. I think with dealing in extremes. Yeah. Sure. So. We did just come out of Romeo and Juliet about a month ago. Um, you were the assistant director. Um, you also ran the show every night virtually by yourself, which is an incredible feat. That was a relatively new experience for you, yeah? I mean, you had run aspects of shows before, and I, I think you've directed some of your own. I mean, certainly direct your own comedy, but you've directed some sort of um, theatrical fair. How was... Romeo and Juliet, how was the scale of the show and how was working with with Hannah in particular? Yeah, I mean, the scale was probably the most intense thing. Hmm. I definitely worked on projects of this scale or even more, but I've but as an actor or or an extra or something right, like sure. that that's like such smaller and less stakes. This was a wild experience that I wouldn't take back for the world because it was incredibly informative and I learned so much. I learned so much from Hannah. I'm only thankful to her for letting me be by her side throughout that whole process because I just was like amazed. This is is Hannah Eidenau, our our director who we brought over from from London for the show. Yeah, I mean, she's amazing at what she does, so it was really great to just have a little bit of a window into her thought processes. Mm-hmm. I mean, first of all, everybody knows this, but a director deals with so much. Sure. And as an actor, I don't think there is sufficient, unless you, like, have been on the other side, I'm not sure actors have sufficient scale of what they are dealing with with theatrical performances, like large-scale theatrical mm-hmm. performances, and films. But I think films people understand a little bit more because... Well, we talk about the auteur in film much more than we do about the director of a, of a even a Broadway show. Right, yeah. And, and, and with film, you see them behind the camera, and you see them talking with mm-hmm. the sound person or the director of photography or whoever it is. And with, with stage stuff, I think the actors come in for rehearsal which they may or may not realize, like, you know, the months that they've been talking about this project beforehand, and then the meetings that are happening after rehearsal and the meetings that are happening before rehearsal and the text messages that are, like, you know, with what is happening with this. And so it's just the scale of the things that she was keeping in her mind are was incredible. Hmm. And the fact that she was able to, on top of all that, have individual conversations with actors about, you know, motivation or, you know, moving from this side of the stage to that side of the stage or why would I do this or, you know, should we play with this moment or however it is, I just, I found myself amazed because I I have directed, you know, much smaller things. I directed a short film and things like that, but it was smaller and it was a shorter script and there was less things to think about. And Mm -hmm. once the lighting had been figured out and, once the director of photography was like, this is what we're going to do, it was like, great, now I can just concentrate. And for Hannah, I just was amazed because she was able to remember what she said to an actor beforehand, 
continuing that conversation and then turn to me and be like, hey, we're going to need to schedule like, you know, two extra hours at some point for us to go over what we just talked about with this actor. And on top of that, we need to think about the lighting because there are eight actors on stage instead of six or whatever it was. And and then the sound cues and, you know, there's all of that in her head at all times because right. everybody's coming to her. And uh, I was amazed. Wow. And I think as the assistant director and I think I was initially kind of because I'd never done it before. I was like, OK, what am I like? What is what is my role? What is this job? Sure. Yeah. And like and then I think we ended up probably doing something that wasn't probably wouldn't be defined as the assistant director role. But I sure. think but was very um, I felt what was nice is I felt very useful and I felt very like I was helping the production mm-hmm. and I was able to connect with Hannah and, you know, I would pitch certain ideas that she would say, absolutely not. <laughs> and, and I was able to be, and what was so nice about that, honestly, was that like, I knew that it felt to me and you'd have to talk to her if this is true, but <laughs> you know, it felt to me like she had respect enough for me to not, just be like, oh, nice. Mm. Okay, we'll think about that. Right. You know, it was like, no, that's a bad idea. So that when I pitched something that was a decent idea, she was like, oh, you know what? That's actually good. Let's let's talk to the actors about that, or let's figure wow. out how we can make that work. And there were a lot more rejections than than positive things, but sure. I think it was really it was really good and it was really nice because I was like, oh, cool. So I I can I know the scale now. Like I know. I know why something is being rejected. I know why something is being accepted. I, right. And it helps my brain sort of, if I were to ever direct something in the future, which I would love to do, it's like it helps my brain go like, oh, this is what's helpful and this is what's just something that you may want but doesn't need to happen. Sure. Yeah. So that right. was an idea that's fun and useful, but maybe not the most useful mm-hmm. or the most necessary. Yeah. That's really interesting. So you would you would like to direct? Is that something that you envision for yourself in the future? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think it would be wonderful. I think it would be. And once again, it's like so much about the team of everybody around sure. you, especially. But I but I do think it's like it's a wonderful process. And I think the director is truly able to take a step back and Hannah is incredible at it of mm. just seeing what the show needs. Right. And, you know, I would see throughout the rehearsal process, you know, the same process that I was having with Hannah as the assistant director, I would see actors go through with Hannah for what they, their individual character, yeah, maybe for yeah. their process. And in the sense that like, you know, actors have a bunch of ideas all the time that a lot of times are like, wonderful and I mean all ideas are wonderful but it's like there were certain ideas that would be pitched at certain times that was like that doesn't help the show right and it's it's not that it's a bad idea it's just like that's not that's not helpful to what we're doing and I was able to sort of like see some of that at certain times Hmm. and that was very helpful for me because I could see because I was behind the table being like Oh, why is that happening? That right. That makes no sense. Contextualize these ideas. Right. In the world that we're creating, this doesn't work. And and so it's it's very interesting. And and it was also very interesting of certain ideas that like in a rehearsal, like an actor would try something, and my first impulse often would be like, Oh, that just that doesn't seem to work at all. (laughs) You know? Not like not as like a judgment, but just like a that doesn't work. That doesn't feel like it works. Right. And then Hannah would be and I would be like, you know, that doesn't feel like it works. And and she would be like, yeah, but I think it might. Hmm. Like, you know, just wait. 
because it's it doesn't work right now. Right. Um, and, you know, a lot of times she was right. It's like and then certain things that worked in one rehearsal. I think this is the thing I learned as a performer. And I learned this in UCB, too. It's helpful with comedy because it either makes people laugh or it doesn't. <laughs> right. But it was so interesting because sometimes because of the mood of one rehearsal or something, an actor would try something and it would work so well. It would be like hmm. a brilliant wonderful move just happened in the moment and then because they got a good reaction of it one rehearsal they would bring it back again and it just would fall doesn't play the same yeah Yeah. and you know for comedy what's nice is like you can have a moment in a show that's a little bit different and you can get a huge laugh and you feel on top of the world and then you try to bring that moment back um, the next night and you realize like what this audience doesn't like that moment and it's like a lot of times it's because like this moment wasn't organic tonight. Mm. It wasn't lived in in the same way. It wasn't the the mood of the show wasn't the same. Right. And so when you're forcing it, the audience can tell, and it's like doesn't hmm. work anymore. And so it was interesting to see those moments where it was like that was a really fun rehearsal moment, but then sometimes you had to be like, yeah, but you got to get rid of it. Right. Even right. though that was that was brilliant when you did it, but now you got to get rid of it. It worked once, but it won't necessarily work on a continuing basis. Right. So you were in the rehearsal room as assistant director for Hannah. You saw this whole rehearsal process. You did all this work around the rehearsal process that a lot of times actors aren't aware of. Um, We then moved into the run of the show, and you moved into the booth and were calling and running the show every night. How was that experience in and of itself? And was there anything difficult, interesting? Do you have any thoughts about moving from sort of being the assistant director in the room to all of a sudden being the person who makes the show happen every night? Yeah, it was so nerve wracking. Mm. Um, (laughs) It's funny because I think the first few shows, especially it's it's, with our show, the cues were so important. The sound and lighting cues were so important. There's a lot of technical elements. Yeah. to like what was happening. And and the most important ones were the most dramatic moments of the show. I mean, every single night it was Juliet taking her vial and there's a transition into the next scene. Mm-hmm. There's a sound cue for when she drinks the vial. And then, well, first there's a lighting cue that's like a slow fade that ends up like creating a spotlight on Juliet. I mean, it looked, I think it looked great. It looked fantastic. And Mick did a fantastic job in that role, um, which made it so nerve wracking for me because I was like, if I mess this up, like the audience is gonna be so angry because like i because i would make i would completely ruin this dramatic Hmm. moment you know that is so pivotal to the story and so it was moments like that that just i was just like my heart was racing and my palms were sweating and oh wow all of that um especially for the first couple nights and then there were other moments where it was less of a big deal and and there were certain things where i did make mistakes of course but luckily it was like generally in the in scenes where there was like a lot of action happening on the stage, on stage, and so it was less noticeable. I'm sure, sure people notice still, but but it's one of those things where like lighting and sound is best when you don't notice them, right? So, right. Yeah. But I but I came out out of it. I mean, I've always had profound respect for lighting designers, uh, sound designers, people who run shows. Mm-hmm. But especially after I've done it, it's like this is tough. Right. And it is. And they deserve a lot of money for it, and they deserve a lot of pro- like praise, and and I and I don't think they get enough. But it's, it is one of those things that I 
I'm appreciative of it. I feel I felt very proud of myself. Um, as yeah, as well you should have to to do it just because I was so nervous about it. But but you know, but I, I don't think I, I I never messed up that Juliet drinking thing, and I never messed up the Romeo killing himself. <laughs> so I was I was very happy about that. And uh, the big moments. Yes. Yeah. Spoiler alert for those. Right. Of you. Yes. It's interesting that you mentioned mistakes you made because I mean during the entire run of the show I don't know that I noticed any technical elements that went wrong. I mean I was also on stage so I wouldn't necessarily have the high level this is everything that should be happening at all times. But it's I mean it's mostly super impressive that you took this job on so well cuz at the beginning of the project you didn't know that you were going to be running the show. <laughs> no that idea. was something that mostly I just sort of sprung on you that welcome you're you've got this whole other job you have to do now. Well I mean it was uh I'm very thankful for it and it was really cool to be there every night to see the show and how it evolved and, you know, really brilliant performances throughout the show. And so it was it was really cool. And also just very interesting to see why one performance was different from the next mm. and all of that. Because I don't think you have you just you can't see it in the same way as an actor. Yeah. Um you can feel it and you can I think performers often say like oh this audience this audience doesn't like us or whatever and you're but like from the booth it's like a lot of times it's like no they still like you they might not be as responsive but they're still like you right or it still reads yeah or like they don't like you and you're not doing great <laughs> or <laughs> right. whatever you know go do better yeah kind of but most of the time it was like the audience is still on your side even if you think even if you're not getting exactly what you want from them it's like right most of the time people are still smiling people are still like having a good time and they're in it yeah yeah you, right I guess we can't demand too much of an audience in terms of response specifically. So we just have a few minutes left here. Um, I've got a couple of like just sort of extra time questions that are apropos of nothing. Do you have or can you in this moment come up with a like a five year plan for yourself and a 10 year plan for yourself um, that you can just quickly sketch out for us? What might that look like? Sure. Uh it's funny. It's like a job interview. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> ooh, five years at this place? Um, no. Uh, <laughs> so I always felt with every job interview. I was like, what do you see yourself in five years? Not, Not here. here. Somewhere else. Yeah. Somewhere else. Working somewhere else and happy. <laughs> Hell away from you. Um, but uh, I think in five years, you know, as an artist, mm -hmm. I would, I would really like to be, I would like to be better, first of all, everything, I think. I mean, that's an important <laughs> thing to know about, sure. Yeah, I mean, just growth-wise. And I I think I would really like to have, within the next five years, really created at least one project that is completely something that's, like, when it started and where it ends is, like, mine. Hmm. Um, something that I can be, like, I'm either telling a part of my story or I am, you know, intimately involved with something and uh, and I will always be thankful and need a team around me and of course. it'll be you know and I'm thankful for anybody that would help me but I think like in the next five years I would like one project that I can be like this was this is like my uh <laughs> I don't know there's a lot to put on it but like you know the <laughs> like with Sylvester Stallone when he wrote Rocky it's like it's like that was his project yeah. and you know I mean that's 
that was an, I mean, it's a best picture winner, but it's like, um, you know, so that could be your project. <laughs> I mean, that would be amazing. Uh, I don't, you know, I'm not expecting that, but I will say that it's like, even if it's something that only three people see, I think it would be great to have a project that's like, I did that. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's, I think I, I love kind of how broad that is. Like you don't, you don't have this specific, this needs to happen in the next five years, but uh, yeah, it's always, especially knowing where we are now with Mad Company and with ourselves, like we are creating our own work and we understand the need to put ourselves out there under sort of our own creative control. So I, I think that's, I think that's ideal to have that for a, a goal for the next five years. Well, maybe I'm purposely vague because otherwise I have to... Right, yeah, committing yourself to Yeah, something. in five years, you're going to have me back on the podcast and be like, where was that where? short film <laughs> or where was that stand-up set that you always wanted to do? That's right, whatever. we're going we're gonna to roll clip from this. Yeah. Um, and then, just in the last couple minutes, briefly, I've asked this of all of the guests so far, which have been exactly two people. If you weren't an actor slash comic slash creative, what would you be what would you be doing Ooh, there's a big part of me i think a friend of mine was an actor and he was a dog trainer and i was like <laughs> as well yeah yeah it was he was okay, always two separate things yeah he was always torn between like being an actor or being a dog trainer and and i think i would love like to be a dog trainer hmm. like i think that would be really fun um i think uh, i mean i love animals Specific, specifically dogs. Sure. And yeah, if I could, you know, like in a different life, my family's all in Montana. So if I could like be in Montana on a huge ranch with a bunch of, you know, like 10 dogs that are hmm. all like expertly trained. Right. And then people would come and be and like, be like, oh, my, you know, my dog's having this issue and I could take like an aggressive dog and make it like a perfect family dog. Or oh. I have, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, I, once again, high hopes for myself in this other career as well. But, right. But I think like that would be a very fulfilling life. I think so. I, that sounds yeah. beautiful, yeah. bucolic, and and lovely. <laughs> um, well, with that, Max Brand, thank you so much for joining us here on One Hail of a Conversation. Um, I had a hail of a time. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Um, we'll have you back at some point in the future because my roster of future guests is pretty short. So uh, you'll be back, but. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We hope you have a, a wonderful day, and we'll see you again next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. To learn more about any of the creatives who spoke in this episode, check out their social media links in the episode description.